Amen. All right. Well, I'm glad to see you guys this morning. I hope you have your Bible with you and that you'll turn to 2 Peter. And I think if you turn to 2 Peter, you'll probably be close enough to the end of 1 Peter uh, to pick up what we, uh, where we left off last week. Last week, we wrapped up the text of 1 Peter with the letter's conclusion. I hope you saw that those closing words are not throwaway words. Uh, those closing words in any biblical letter are important. They are full of truth and wisdom. Each phrase that we looked at last week was packed with important truth. We talked about how Peter says this is the true grace of God. We talked about indicative statements that Peter had shared with us all throughout the letter. Fantastic truths that he had stated about who we are in Christ. Things that he taught us about who we are as the church. You may remember he said you are chosen. You are beloved. You are redeemed. You are secured. He taught us all of those things about who we are in Christ. We also talked last week about the indicative statements of the gospel that we see throughout 1 Peter. How God is holy and man is sinful and Christ died in the place of sinners. These are basic indicative statements of fact. But those don't just stand alone. Those basic indicative statements of fact are always calling us to truth. We are always called to respond to those things. So Peter said to the church, he said, be holy and stand firm. He said, don't give up and don't give in. Even in the midst of heat and persecution and opposition and ostrac- uh, being ostracized by the, by the world, don't give up and don't give in and don't quit. And when it comes to those who are outside the church, he said, repent and believe. That's the call to action. God is holy and man is sinful and Christ died for sinners. And so therefore, repent of your sins. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. So we talked about those indicative statements. We talked about the imperative calls to action. I said that we do this even in Babylon. You may remember that one of the greetings was she who is in Babylon, who's been chosen along together with you, greets you. That we live in Babylon. Let's not be deceived. This world is not our home. Uh, This world is messed up and broken because of sin. But we must live with holiness and with faithfulness even in the midst of it. Even in Babylon, we stand firm. Even in Babylon, we be holy. And we do that together as a family. You may remember that part most of all from last week, that we are not called to isolated individual Christianity. We are called to follow the Lord Jesus as a family. We are called into relationship with him by grace through faith in Jesus. And we are called into relationship with one another by grace through faith in Jesus. And I really am looking forward to this afternoon and the picnic. That may seem like a really simple and superficial thing, but it's important uh, that we spend time together, enjoying a meal together and spending some time in fellowship together. That's where those family relationships are are strengthened and improved and deepened. Remember last week I told you that we want to grow deeper in our affection for those that we're already walking closely with. Like we don't want to be satisfied with where we're at with our closest friends and brothers and sisters. But we also want to grow in the width of our, our affection for one another. Like today at the picnics, sit with someone you don't know well, talk with someone you don't see very often, and grow in, in those family relationships. Well, this week we're going to do something a little bit different, a little bit out of the ordinary. I want us to review 1 Peter, review our study of 1 Peter, and then transition into our study of 2 Peter with some introductory material. And at the end, what we're going to do is watch a video. 
uh, an eight-minute long video that gives a really good high-altitude flyover of this whole letter in a really creative and memorable way. And then I hope that we're going to have time at the very end to just read through the entire letter of Second Peter together, uh, to let that be in our minds as we walk away and as we lean into this new study. So I don't have a text to read right off the bat today. We're going to read at the very end, but I do want us to pray before we get going. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are so very thankful for all the things that you've shown us and taught us over the last eight and a half months in the study of 1 Peter. Thank you for the ways you've challenged us, you've pushed us to new uh, areas of, of faithfulness and holiness even. Thank you for the ways you've encouraged us. Thank you for the moments which were not merely timely, but more timely than we could ever imagined. And by your spirit, we ask that you would remind us of all those things that we've been taught. As we finish up this study today, we ask that you would cause those lessons to stick with us as we move ahead, not just for the next few weeks, but for the rest of our lives, that we would never walk away from the things that you have taught us over these last eight and a half months. And as we move into a new study, oh, oh Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes that can see and do see. We ask that you would give us ears that can hear and do hear all that you would have to say to us. And we pray that you would give us soft hearts that receive the message, that believe the message, and that respond to it properly. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we get started today, kind of making transition out of one study into another study, I want to remind you why we are committed to expositional preaching here at First Baptist Church. You guys have heard this same speech a few times. You've heard me defend expositional preaching a few times. And I want to do it a few more times as the years go by to remind you why we approach preaching the way we do here at First Baptist Church. Number one, we do this because we believe what God's word says about God's word in 2 Timothy chapter 3, namely in verse 16, when it says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. We believe that all scripture is inspired. Some of your translations say God breathed. We believe that all of it has been breathed out of the mouth of God and has come from him. And we believe that all of it is profitable to us. Profitable in a number of different ways, like 2 Timothy says, but profitable to us. We will not waste our time studying God's word. And we will not waste our time studying all of God's word. We also believe what God's word says about God's word in Hebrews chapter 4 which says, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. We really believe that God's word is alive. Right? It, it is not some stale, dead thing, inactive thing that we just keep on a shelf to gather dust. We believe God's word is alive. In fact, I'll argue in a little while that some of you are going to read back through First Peter this week, and you're going to see things that you didn't see before. Things are going to jump off the page that didn't jump off the page back when we studied it months ago. It's alive, it's active, and it does work. The Word of God does work. Sometimes it heals us up, sometimes it soothes a wound, sometimes it encourages us forward, and sometimes it convicts us and breaks us and ruins us before the Lord so that He might restore us by His grace. The Word of God does work. It is powerful and active and alive, and so we preach it the way we do. We also preach the way we do because we're convinced that the healthiest diet for the church is a steady diet of expositional preaching. Now, 
I will acknowledge that there's a time and a place for some snacks, as we mentioned in Sunday school this morning. There's some snacks of topical preaching. But the bulk of our diet, the massive bulk of our diet must be exposition if we're going to be healthy. I am in agreement with Mark Dever when he says this. This, namely expositional preaching, is preaching whose object is to expound what is said in a particular passage of Scripture, carefully explaining its meaning and applying it to the congregation. There's a great example of this in Nehemiah chapter 8. You might want to look at that later today where the word of God is read and then explained to the people, and they, they are undone by it. It's fantastic. Nehemiah chapter 8. There are, Dever says, of course, many other types of preaching. Topical sermons, for example, gather up all Scripture's teaching on a single subject, like prayer or giving. Biographical preaching takes the life of someone in the Bible and portrays it as a display of God's grace and as an example of hope and faithfulness. But expositional preaching is something else. An explanation and application of a particular portion of God's word. Explanation and application of a particular portion of God's word. In expositional preaching, we let the point of the sermon come out of the text. It comes from the text. It starts, everything starts with the text. Not an idea in the preacher's head. Not some movement he has had uh, somewhere along the way. But it starts with the text and the point comes out of the text. I heard recently an objection that says this kind of preaching, this expositional type of preaching where you just start with the text and, and you preach out of the text doesn't seem very spirit-led. So that, that doesn't seem very spirit-led. And I would say, who's behind the text? If, if you don't think it's spirit-led, let me ask you, who's behind the text that is leading the way, if not the Holy Spirit? All Scripture is God-breathed, right, and profitable to us. So I don't know that there's any more spirit-led way to preach than to simply preach the text because I know the Spirit is behind the text. If you start with me in my office on a Monday morning, there's no telling who's behind that. Right? That might be the Holy Spirit. It could be the Holy Spirit. I pray that it would be the Holy Spirit. But it might be uh, bad pizza from the night before or some hang-up I've got in a relationship or some kind of thing that could influence that. So I would say, I just want to address that objection to say that that doesn't seem very Spirit-led. I would say we know that the Spirit is behind the text. And so to start with the text seems to be the easiest way to be sure that we are led by the Spirit. The text leads the way. It's just another way to say the Spirit leads the way. The Spirit leads the way, and he will say what he has to say. We do this because we believe, we preach this way because we believe that when we study God's word with discipline, with consistency, he will bring us just what we need, just when we need it. He can anticipate your needs better than I can. He can meet your needs better than I can through his word. And we have seen this over and over. Even if we just take the last eight and a half months as we've studied through 1 Peter, I can tell you countless examples where he brought us just what we needed, just when we needed to hear it in ways that I could never, we could never have fabricated. Praise the Lord for that. So that's my, um, that's my defense of and pitch for expositional preaching. And I want to do that occasionally to keep you mindful of why we do it the way we do it. There, there's logic, there's reason behind it. We're not just shooting from the hip here. Let's talk a little bit about the message of 1 Peter in review. It was obvious in our study of 1 Peter that this book was written to a group of people who were facing pressure. Pressure of persecution and suffering. It was obvious that this letter is a pastoral encouragement to remember the gospel, 
and stand firm in the grace of God. Remember the gospel and stand firm in the grace of God when the heat all around you gets turned up. That's a pastoral heart behind that, right? Which is why about halfway through preaching through 1 Peter, I started calling him Pastor Peter. Like not just the apostle, not just the revered guy uh, who is leader of the church, but he's a pastor of these people and he's speaking with a pastor's heart to these people to keep them encouraged and moving along. Scott McKnight, I think, gives a great summary, a great summary of the message of 1 Peter when he says, the message of 1 Peter concerns how Christians are to live in a hostile environment and live in such a way that they not only endure, but also have a lasting impact for the good on that environment. He wants his readers to understand, appreciate, and appropriate their special relationship to God as a result of their salvation and their new relationship to others in the universal family of God. Put differently, he does not want them to focus on their social marginalization or on persecution because of their faith. Rather, he wants them to see that no matter what happens, God loves them, God protects them, and has promised that when the end comes, they will be vindicated and glorified. Consequently, they can rejoice now with an inexpressible delight in God's goodness. And this last line just absolutely nails it. He says, thus, Peter intends his readers to understand who they are before God so that they can be who they are in society. Understand who you are before God so that you can be who you are out here in the world. That's important. Tom Schreiner says less about it, uh, but he gives a good summary in one sentence when he says, the purpose of the letter is to encourage believers to hold fast and hold on while they endure suffering and distress in the present evil age. Pastor Peter summarizes it this way in the text that we looked at last week in verse 12. When he says, through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This is the true grace of God. He wants you to know what the true grace of God is, and now stand firm in it. Stand firm in it in a world that is broken and undone. A friend in my Sunday school class expressed his excitement over this study when we were starting like a week or two before we started, and I told him we were getting ready to start, he said this about First Peter. He said, if you only had one book of the Bible, this one would suffice. If you only had one book of the Bible, First Peter would suffice. You could survive on First Peter. And, and I, I don't think he's wrong. Karen Job said that Luther, Martin Luther, believed that First Peter contained all that is necessary for a Christian to know. So what we have studied for the last eight and a half months is solid core stuff. It's not fringe uh, stuff. It is solid core gospel teaching. So let me encourage you this week sometime to read back over 1 Peter. One sitting. Sit down with 1 Peter and read through from verse 1 to the end of the book without stopping. Who knows? Maybe there will be sections that jump off the page at you now that didn't back then. Maybe there will be things that you see now that you didn't see then because God's word is living and active and what you need today might be different from what you needed seven months ago. And God, by his grace, will supply that through his word. So remember, his word is living and active and read over 1 Peter again sometime this week. So let's transition out of 1 Peter into 2 Peter by talking first about the authorship of 2 Peter. This may seem like a simple question, but it's actually difficult. It's actually quite complex when we talk about the authorship of 2 Peter. When I introduced 1 Peter to you, I told you that, like most things in the realm of biblical scholarship, 
the authorship of this letter is sometimes debated. 1 Peter is sometimes debated. Despite the fact that the book claims Peter is the author in the very first verse, despite the fact that the earliest church leaders embraced it universally as a letter from Peter, despite the fact that nearly everyone in the last 2,000 years has affirmed Peter as the author, there are a few who deny that. There are a few who deny it. So 1 Peter, there's not a lot of debate. There are a few, but not a lot of debate. But when it comes to 2 Peter, that debate is much more heated. It is much more complicated. If you read any introductory material about 2 Peter, you're going to get into the controversy about authorship of 2 Peter. Throughout history, there have been several who have questioned the authorship of this letter. Did this really come from the Apostle Peter? And they make this argument primarily based on the differences between 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And you're going to get that today. Like, hopefully at the end of the service, I'm going to read all the way through 2 Peter, and you're going to say, even in English, this sounds a little bit different. Even in English, there seems to be a little bit of a different rhythm. There seems to be a little bit of a different tone to what's going on here. And so they say, same guy cannot have written both of these things because the language is different. That's one part of it. The language is different. There are words that are used in 2 Peter that are never used in 1 Peter. In fact, there are a lot of words that are used in 2 Peter that are not used anywhere else in the entire New Testament. So they will say, because there are so many unique words in 2 Peter, it must not be Peter who wrote it. And my counter to that argument would be, yeah, the language is different, but so is the timing of this. This is later in Peter's life. The language is different. Our language changes as we grow and as we move and as we encounter different things. And also, the subject matter is different. The subject matter in 2 Peter is quite different from the subject matter of 1 Peter. I'm going to talk about that at length in a minute. And so the language is different because of that. So if I have a conversation with Joe uh, about baseball and a conversation with, with Ethan about baptism, they'll, they'll, I'm going to have two different sets of language here, right? I'm going to use two different sets of words. There are going to be words I use with Joe that I don't use with Ethan and vice versa because the subject matter is different. And the subject matter is different between these two letters. They will also say the style is different. The way it flows is different. Well, that may be because Silvanus had a hand in 1 Peter. He said that at the very end of the letter, right? Through my faithful brother Silvanus, for so I regard him. So maybe Silvanus was more than just a courier. Maybe he was an editor or secretary, and we see a little bit of his personality here. Maybe Peter had a different secretary with 2 Peter. Or maybe what we got in 1 Peter was Peter plus Silvanus, and what we get in 2 Peter is just pure Peter. I don't know. I don't know exactly what's going on there, but there's a difference in style that I want to acknowledge. But Gene Green, who's a scholar that I will quote often, <laughs> mean Gene Green, uh, is a scholar I'll quote often in our study of Second Peter. He, he makes an important point here. When we talk about the differences, he says this, we simply do not possess a large enough corpus of Petrine literature to determine what Peter could or could not have written. All right, so there's some words there that we're not super familiar with, but he basically says, all we have from Peter is First Peter and Second Peter. It's not like Paul where we have this letter and this letter and this letter and this. So we've got all this stuff from Paul. And so when something sounds out of whack, we can say, man, that doesn't sound like everything else that we know came from Paul. With Peter, we've just got these two. And so to say that this couldn't have come from Peter, but this must have, just seems like we don't have enough material there. All of that to say this, I stand with most conservative evangelicals in confidence that this letter was written by the Apostle Peter. There's a debate, there's an argument, you can't get around it. If we're going to study 2 Peter, we've got to acknowledge it. 
But I will say that I stand with most conservative evangelical scholars who say that this was written by the Apostle Peter. But here's what you need to know. Even if not, it's come from the Lord ultimately, right? We receive the scriptures from the Lord ultimately. He is the author of scripture, regardless of where we land on which human he used to pen it. Jim Shaddix takes this position when he says, The Apostle Peter is the stated author of the book in the first verse. And there's no good reason for us to think otherwise. That's pretty simple, right? Should have just gone with that to start with. Verse 1 says, from Peter. That should be sufficient for us. Let's review some of what we know about the Apostle Peter as the author of this letter. We know first that the Apostle Peter was a follower of Jesus, right? Back in Mark chapter 1, we see the calling of Peter in verse 16 when it says, As he, that's Jesus, was going along by the Sea of Galilee... He saw Simon, that's Peter, and Andrew, Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Peter was first a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the twelve who went with him and were discipled by him. But even more than that, Peter was part of the three of those twelve who were in the inner circle with Jesus. Jesus had the 12 that were with him almost everywhere he went, but he had three that he led in to see certain things that the others didn't, and Peter was one of those three. Peter, James, and John saw the raising of Jairus' daughter. The rest of the guys didn't get to see this, but they saw the raising of Jairus' daughter in Mark chapter 5, and they also were privy to the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus. You remember this? I want to remind you of it because it's going to come up in the letter. Like Peter is going to remind people that he saw this happen in 2 Peter. So look at Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 2. It says, Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared with them, along with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. That last bit, uh, Mark just heaps on heaps on the language to say that Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one that matters. And Peter saw that. Peter saw Jesus glorified on that mountain, transfigured before him, and he's going to remind people of that. Peter was a follower of Jesus. He was part of the closest followers of Jesus, but that doesn't mean his life was all all on the right track, right? When we read about Peter in the Gospels, it was all over the place, ups and downs. In fact, just recently, on a Sunday night, we studied Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, where uh, Jesus says, who do they say that I am? And, and the disciples answer, oh, they say you're Elijah, some say Moses, some say you're John the Baptist, all, all these things. And then he says, who do you say that I am? He says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And who speaks up on behalf of the twelve? Peter. And what's he say? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus blesses him and says, oh, you're so blessed because flesh and blood didn't give that to you, but the Father gave that to you. And we're like, yes, Peter, he is the man. And then right after this, Jesus starts to speak to them 
about how he must go to the cross and die and be raised again. And Peter says, no way. Peter rebukes Jesus for talking about dying. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. These thoughts did not come from above. Peter is all over the place, right? Sometimes we want to say, Peter's my hero. And other times we want to say, Peter's a loser. And therefore, he's relatable, right? Because are any of you winning all the time? Any of you, every moment of your walk with Jesus, like getting it right, acing the test every time? No, we're just like Peter, all over the place, ups and downs, right? Peter was all ups and downs. He failed big time. At the, at the crucifixion of Jesus, at the trial and crucifixion of Jesus, denied him three times around that charcoal fire. Said, I don't know him. I don't know what you're talking about. I've never heard of the guy. He even swore in the process to distance himself from the Lord Jesus. But then in Mark chapter 14, on the seashore after Christ has died for our sins and been raised from the dead, Jesus and Peter have a conversation where Peter is confronted with his failure, convicted and restored, restored and used. Peter becomes a leader of men and a pillar of the church. He's always, always listed first in any list of the disciples, any list of the apostles in the New Testament. If we get a list of them, first name is Peter. Peter was a leader of the early church, a leader of men. In Acts chapter 1, he's the one who leads the way to replace Judas after his betrayal of Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, he's the first one to preach the good news in the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter is used by God in powerful ways, and Peter dies as a faithful martyr, a faithful witness, proclaiming the, the gospel even when it costs him his life. You know that church tradition would say that Peter was crucified upside down because of his bold witness unto Jesus, and because of his humility, not counting himself worthy to die in the same way his master did. So here's what I want to say. Despite the debate around the authorship and the widespread neglect of this letter, as a result sometimes, it's going to be super important for us to study 2 Peter. 2 Peter is going to be really timely for us, even though there's some controversy around it. John MacArthur says this. He says, 2 Peter, along with Jude, Jude and 2 Peter really travel well together, is viewed by some as the dark corner of the New Testament. And as a result, is not often preached, not often studied, not often discussed, not often quoted. But the church of Jesus Christ ignores this epistle to its peril. Never has Peter's warning been more timely than it is today. And here's why. False teachers were running amok, and Peter needed to address it. The people of God were be, being led astray by lies and being led into licentious worldly living by those lies. And Pastor Peter had to confront those things, right? The occasion, the reason why Peter wrote 1 Peter, the reason why he wrote the first letter was that there was a threat of opposition from the outside. We were familiar with this, right? There was a threat of marginalization. He calls them chosen ones who are exiled. Right, scattered all over Asia Minor. He's writing to them because they're experiencing heat from the outside in the first letter. But in the second letter, there's a threat of corruption from the inside. It's not heat from the outside. It's false teaching on the inside that Peter's addressing in the second letter. Douglas Moo says, 
with Peter and Jude, what Peter and Jude are dealing with then is an outbreak of false teaching that saw in the free forgiveness of the gospel a golden opportunity to indulge their own selfish and sinful desires. There's an outbreak of false teaching where people pervert the gospel of free grace into an opportunity to live any way they wanted. Does that sound familiar? Is that, a, is that a first century problem alone? No, certainly not. We experience the same thing. It seems that these false teachers are taking Paul's teaching on grace and abusing it as a license to sin, which ironically is the very thing that Paul repeatedly warns his audience against, right? P- Peter preaches about free grace and the forgiveness of sins in a new life, and then he, then he will say, so shall we sin all the more so that grace will abound all the more? May it never be. Heavens, no. Paul anticipates people will make that connection and then stops them. But these guys are making that connection and running wild with it. And also, these false teachers are doubting the return of Christ and therefore the final judgment of all people. They are skeptical about the final judgment. And if you, if you take final judgment off the table, you will live however you want. If you say there's no accountability eternally, you will live however you want. And that's what is happening here. There's a false teaching... There's an unorthodox teaching that is leading to a terrible way of living. And what we're going to learn in in 2 Peter is that doctrine and practice go together. That right thinking leads to right living. And that wrong thinking will lead to wrong living. And that's what the false teachers are doing. Dick Lucas says, in 2 Peter, the alarm bells are ringing. Churches may be attacked from without to the point of near destruction, as, it, as is evidenced in Iran and Sudan and North Korea, to name only three examples of cruel oppression. I want to stop there and add, you want to know on the planet where the church is growing most rapidly? You want to know on the planet where the gospel is spreading like wildfire? Uh, Iran and North Korea and Sudan and places like that. There are threats from the outside that cannot and do not and must not stop the spread of the gospel or the growth of the church. But he goes on, Lucas goes on and says, but almost more deadly still is that self-destructive madness that operates within the churches as a direct consequence of ruinous heresies secretly introduced to the mainstream of church teaching. That threat from within is real, really dangerous and really subtle and really present in our lives. And so we're going to need to be really careful. There are plenty of false teachers. There are plenty of false teachings flying around us today. So our study of 2 Peter is going to help us to be discerning. It's going to help us to hold fast to the truth. It's going to help us to live according to the gospel and help us to be faithful witnesses in a lost and dying world. Friends, 2 Peter might not be familiar to you, but it is going to be super timely for us. And I believe it will be very helpful for us here and now arguably more helpful than 1 Peter. Because what we are experiencing is not like what the church in 1 Peter was experiencing. It's not this violent threat from the outside. It's not this heat that's being turned up from the outside globally. That's not what we're experiencing right now. But what we do encounter all the time is false teaching, subtle false teachings that steal us away from faithfulness to the gospel, steal us away from holiness unto Christ. So this will be a timely word. So now I want us to watch this video. It's eight minutes and three seconds long. It's really good overview of 2 Peter. Pay close attention, but know that you can get this online on your own and watch it slower. 
It's really good. The, the Bible Project has good stuff, and this is one good thing from them. So watch this, and then we'll wrap it up. The second letter of Peter. It's addressed to the same network of churches as Peter's first letter, and it's likely written from the same location in Rome. Peter's become aware of the fact that he's going to die soon, and the evidence that we have from early tradition was that Peter was executed by the Roman authorities during the reign of Emperor Nero. And so this letter acts as Peter's farewell speech. He begins by offering a final challenge, that Jesus' followers must be people who never stop growing. And then this is followed by two final warnings about a growing number of corrupt teachers who are leading Christians in these church communities astray, first by their corrupt way of life and second by their distorted theology. Throughout the letter, Peter is countering accusations made by these teachers against himself and the other apostles. And Peter's goal is to restore confidence and order to these church communities. So Peter opens by reminding these churches that through Jesus, God has invited people to become a participant in his own divine nature. That is, to share in God's own eternal life and love, which is mind-blowing. And it requires a lifelong response. To receive this gift means a commitment to developing the same character traits that mark God's own divine nature. Peter lists here seven traits to strive for. And the final one encompasses and crowns all of the others, it's love, which according to Jesus means devoting oneself to the well-being of others, no matter their response or the cost. To love, according to Peter, is to share in God's own life. Peter then states the letter's purpose. It's going to act as a memorial of his teaching that can be passed on to later generations because he's not going to be around to give it much longer in person. So before he dies, he wants to address these objections and accusations being made by the teachers who distort Jesus' teaching and that of the apostles. So Peter first addresses an accusation repeated by the skeptics present and future, namely that he and the apostles just made up all of this stuff about Jesus being risen from the dead and king of the world. Jesus isn't really going to come back one day. So Peter offers his eyewitness testimony of the powerful moment of Jesus' transformation on the mountain. Remember the story in Mark chapter 9. The apostles saw Jesus exalted as king, and his resurrection means that he's alive as king and will return to rescue our world one day. And so the future return of Jesus to bring God's kingdom, this will fulfill what all the ancient scriptures have been pointing to all along. The words of the Old Testament prophets. They're not fabricated fantasies. Rather, through these human words of scripture and through the human Jesus, God himself has spoken to us. Peter then moves on to address the threats raised by corrupt leaders in the church, and he focuses on more objections that they raise. So first, these teachers deny the idea of a final reckoning when God's going to hold all people accountable for their choices. And this denial is what conveniently allows the teachers to ignore Jesus' teaching about money and sex, because they're making tons of profit by teaching in the churches, not to mention the fact that they're sleeping around. But Peter reminds the readers that God can and will meet rebellion with his justice. He recalls three ancient examples when God did this. He first mentions the story about the sons of God in Genesis 6 as it was interpreted in a popular Jewish work of the time called First Enoch. First Enoch says the sons of God are rebellious angels who crossed the line and slept with women, earning God's judgment. 
Peter then brings up the story of the ancient flood and then the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. In each case, there was a rebellion that led to divine judgment. But, Peter says, God was always faithful to deliver his people, and he uses the story of Lot to provide an example. Peter then connects these ancient stories to the teacher's corrupt way of life. They too are after money and sex, they despise God's authority, and they lead other people to think that God doesn't care about moral decisions. He says they teach a message of Christian freedom and use it as a license to do whatever they want. This is why Peter's going to bring up Paul's letters later on in chapter 3. It appears that these teachers have distorted Paul's message of liberation in Christ, but that's not the kind of freedom Paul meant. And Peter makes clear that these teachers are not really free. In reality, they're slaves to their bodily impulses. And the fact that they're Christians makes it even more tragic because knowing Jesus' teaching makes them doubly accountable. They have become pitiful examples of the ancient proverb about a dog returning to its vomit and a washed pig going back to the mud. Peter then addresses the reasoning behind the teacher's denial of the final reckoning. They say generations of God's people keep coming and passing away without seeing the fulfillment of their hopes. Where is this promised return of Jesus? Peter responds by showing how short-sighted this objection is. Look around, he says, at this remarkable universe that we inhabit. The fact that we exist at all means that at some moment in the past, God's word intervened in a dramatic way to bring something out of nothing and to bring order out of chaos, and he can do so again. And so the real question is, why is God taking so long? But Peter reminds us that our human conception of time is extremely limited. The long expanses of time through which God works don't fit neatly into the framework of our very short lives. These long amounts of time are actually a sign of God's patience because each generation is offered the chance to recognize its own selfishness, to humble itself, and repent before God's generous grace. And God's grace will bring the story to a close on the day of the Lord. Here Peter draws upon the prophetic poetry of Isaiah and Zephaniah, who describe the day of God's justice as a consuming fire. Peter says, the heavens will pass away and the stoicheia will melt by fire. This is a Greek word that could refer to the elements, in which case it means the dissolution of the material universe, or more likely it refers to heavenly bodies, in other words, the stars. That's what this word means in Isaiah chapter 34 where Peter is quoting from. And in that case, this line is a metaphor about the sky being peeled back, so to speak, before the God who sees all. And so this is why Peter says the day of the Lord will result in the earth and all its works being exposed. The ultimate purpose of God's consuming justice is not to scrap the material universe. Rather, it's to expose evil and injustice and remove it so that a new kind of heavens and earth can emerge, one that is permeated with righteousness, full of God's love and people who know and love God and love their neighbor as themselves. Peter concludes by saying this is the true Christian hope that Jesus and all the apostles have been announcing, including Paul, whose writings can be misunderstood if you rip them out of context, but all the apostles are on the same page. And so Peter ends his final address to the church.
Now, the tone of Second Peter, it feels really intense, but his passion comes from a firm conviction that God loves this world and he's determined to rescue it through Jesus. And so this means that God's love must confront and deal with the sin and injustice that ruins his beloved world. And in God's own time, he will do so, opening up a new future for humanity and for the universe itself. And so Second Peter has a wide, expansive vision of hope for the whole world, and it challenges us to examine our everyday lives. That's what the second letter of Peter is all about. That's what the second letter of Peter is all about. Let's read the second letter of Peter together. Chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. For now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Therefore... I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain." So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned. 
And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the, right, the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. Having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. Having followed the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. These are the springs, these are springs without water and mists driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by, what, for by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to the wallowing in its mire. Chapter three, this is, this is now beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was at the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. 
But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and pray. Oh, Father, we are indeed thankful for all the things you have taught us over the last several months in First Peter. And we are indeed already thankful for the things that you will teach us as we launch into Second Peter over the next several months. We trust your word and we trust your spirit. We trust your timing. We trust your wisdom that as we study, you will bring us what we need when we need it. Lord, we beg that you would open our eyes and make them see. Open our ears and make them hear. Soften our hearts to receive all of this, to believe it, and to obey it. God, we pray for men and women and boys and girls who are even in this room today who are far from you. Oh God, bring them to yourself. Show them your holiness and their sinfulness. Teach them that Christ died for sinners. And God, give them faith that trusts in Christ. Give them repentance to turn from sins and save them by your grace for your glory forevermore. We pray in Christ's name.